Chapter 50, Part 8 of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 50, Part 8. A life of prayer and contemplation had not chilled the martial activity of Ali, but in a mature age, after a long experience of mankind, he still betrayed in his conduct the rashness and indiscretion of youth. In the first days of his reign he neglected to secure, either by gifts or fetters, the doubtful allegiance of Telha and Zobir, two of the most powerful of the Arabian chiefs. They escaped from Medina to Mecca, and thence to Basra, erected the standard of revolt, and usurped the government of Iraq, or Assyria, which they had vainly solicited as the reward of their services. The mask of patriotism is allowed to cover the most glaring inconsistencies, and the enemies, perhaps the assassins of Othman, now demanded the vengeance for his blood. They were accompanied in their flight by Aisha, the widow of the prophet, who cherished to the last hour of her life, an implacable hatred against the husband and posterity of Fatima. The most reasonable Muslims were scandalized that the mother of the faithful should expose in a camp her person and character, but the superstitious crowd was confident that her presence would sanctify the justice and assure the success of their cause. At the head of twenty thousand of his loyal Arabs and nine thousand valiant auxiliaries of Kufa, the caliph encountered and defeated the superior numbers of the rebels under the walls of Basra. Their leaders, Toha and Zobir, were slain in the first battle that stained with civil blood the arms of the Moslems. After passing through the ranks to animate the troops, Aisha had chosen her post amidst the dangers of the field. In the heat of the action, seventy men who held the bridle of her camel were successively killed or wounded, and the cage or litter in which she sat was stuck with javelins and darts like the quills of a porcupine. The venerable captive sustained with firmness the reproaches of the conqueror, and speedily dismissed to her proper station at the tomb of Mohammed with the respect and tenderness that was still due to the widow of the apostle. After this victory, which was styled the Day of the Camel, Ali marched against a more formidable adversary, against Mohawiyah, the son of Abu Sofian, who had assumed the title of Caliph, and whose claim was supported by the forces of Syria and the interests of the house of Omiyah. From the passage of Thapsacus, the plain of Sufin extends along the western bank of the Euphrates. On this spacious and level theater, the two competitors waged a desultory war of 110 days. In the course of 90 actions or skirmishes, the loss of Ali was estimated at 25, that of Mohawiyah at 45,000 soldiers, and the list of the slain was dignified with the names of five and twenty veterans who had fought at Bedar under the standard of Mohammed. In this sanguinary contest, the lawful caliph displayed a superior character of valor and humanity. His troops were strictly enjoined to await the first onset of the enemy, to spare their flying brethren, and to respect the bodies of the dead, and the chastity of the female captives. He generously proposed to save the blood of the Moslems by a single combat, but his trembling rival declined the challenge as a sentence of inevitable death. The ranks of the Syrians were broken by a charge of a hero who was mounted on a piebald horse and wielded with irresistible force his ponderous and two-edged sword. As often as he smote a rebel, he shouted the Allah Akbar, God is victorious, 
and in the tumult of a nocturnal battle he was heard to repeat four hundred times that tremendous exclamation. The prince of Damascus already meditated his flight, but the certain victory was snatched from the grasp of Ali by the disobedience and enthusiasm of his troops. Their conscience was awed by the solemn appeal to the books of the Koran, which Mohawiyah exposed on the foremost lances, and Ali was compelled to yield to a disgraceful truce and an insidious compromise. He retreated with sorrow and indignation to Kufa. His party was discouraged. The distant provinces of Persia, of Yemen, and of Egypt were subdued or seduced by his crafty rival, and the stroke of fanaticism, which was aimed against the three chiefs of the nation, was fatal only to the cousin of Mohammed. In the temple of Mecca, three Cherigites, or enthusiasts, discoursed on the disorders of the church and state, and they soon agreed that the deaths of Ali, of Mohawiyah, and of his friend Amru, the vice-regent of Egypt, would restore the peace and unity of religion. Each of the assassins chose his victim, poisoned his dagger, devoted his life, and secretly repaired to the scene of action. Their resolution was equally desperate, but the first mistook the person of Amru, and stabbed the deputy who occupied his seat. The prince of Damascus was dangerously hurt by the second. The lawful caliph, in the mosque of Kufa, received a mortal wound from the hand of the third. He expired in the sixty-third year of his age, and mercifully recommended to his children that they would dispatch the murderer by a single stroke. The sepulchre of Ali was concealed from the tyrants of the house of Omiyah, but in the fourth age of the Hagira, a tomb, a temple, a city, arose near the ruins of Kufa. Many thousands of the Shiites repose in holy ground at the feet of the vicar of God, and the desert is vivified by the numerous and annual visits of the Persians, who esteem their devotion not less meritorious than the pilgrimage of Mecca. The persecutors of Mohammed usurped the inheritance of his children, and the champions of idolatry became the supreme heads of his religion and empire. The opposition of Abu Sofian had been fierce and obstinate. His conversion was tardy and reluctant. His new faith was fortified by necessity and interest. He served, he fought, perhaps he believed, and the sins of the time of ignorance were expiated by the recent merits of the family of Omiyah. Mohiwaya, the son of Abu Sofian and of the cruel Henda, was dignified in his early youth with the office or title of secretary of the prophet. The judgment of Omar entrusted him with the government of Syria. He administered that important province above forty years, either in a subordinate or supreme rank. Without renouncing the fame of valor and liberality, he affected the reputation of humanity and moderation. A grateful people was attached to their benefactor, and the victorious Moslems were enriched with the spoils of Cyprus and Rhodes. The sacred duty of pursuing the assassins of Othman was the engine and pretense of his ambition. The bloody shirt of the martyr was exposed in the mosque of Damascus. The emir deplored the fate of his injured kinsmen, and sixty thousand Syrians were engaged in his service by an oath of fidelity and revenge. Amru, the conqueror of Egypt, himself an army, was the first who saluted the new monarch, and divulged the dangerous secret that the Arabian caliphs might be created elsewhere than in the city of the prophet. The policy of Mohawiyah eluded the valor of his rival, and after the death of Ali he negotiated the abdication of his son Hassan, whose mind was either above or below the government of the world, and who retired without a sigh from the palace of Kufa, to a humble cell near the tomb of his grandfather. The aspiring wishes of the caliph were finally crowned by the important change of an elective 
to an hereditary kingdom. Some murmurs of freedom or fanaticism attested the reluctance of the Arabs, and four citizens of Medina refused their oath of fidelity. But the designs of Mohawiyah were conducted with vigor and address, and his son, Yezid, a feeble and dissolute youth, was proclaimed as the commander of the faithful and the successor of the apostle of God. A familiar story is related of the benevolence of one of the sons of Ali. In serving at table, a slave had inadvertently dropped a dish of scalding broth on his master. The heedless wretch fell prostrate to deprecate his punishment, and repeated a verse of the Koran, Paradise is for those who command their anger. I am not angry. And for those who pardon offenses, I pardon your offense. And for those who return good for evil, I give you your liberty and four hundred pieces of silver. With an equal measure of piety, Hossein, the younger brother of Hassan, inherited the remnant of his father's spirit and served with honor against the Christians in the siege of Constantinople. The primogenitor of the line of Hashim and the holy character of the grandson of the apostle had centered in his person, and he was at liberty to prosecute his claim against Yazid, the tyrant of Damascus, whose vices he despised and whose title he had never deigned to acknowledge. A list was secretly transmitted from Kufa to Medina of one hundred and forty thousand Muslims who professed their attachment to his cause and who were eager to draw their swords as soon as he should appear on the banks of the Euphrates. Against the advice of his wisest friends, he resolved to trust his person and family in the hands of a perfidious people. He traversed the desert of Arabia with a timorous retinue of women and children, but as he approached the confines of Iraq, he was alarmed by the solitary or hostile face of the country, and suspected either the defection or ruin of his party. His fears were just. Obeidallah, the governor of Kafu, had extinguished the first sparks of an insurrection, and Hossein, on the plain of Kerbala, was encompassed by a body of five thousand horse who intercepted his communication with the city and the river. He might still have escaped to a fortress in the desert that had defied the power of Caesar and Kosaris, and confided in the fatality of the tribe of Tai, who would have armed ten thousand warriors in his defense. In a conference with the chief of the enemy, he proposed the option of three honorable conditions, that he should be allowed to return to Medina, or be stationed in a frontier garrison against the Turks or safely conducted to the presence of Yezid. But the commands of the caliph or his lieutenant were stern and absolute, and Hussein was informed that he must either submit as a captive and criminal to the commander of the faithful, or expect the consequences of his rebellion. Do you think, replied he, to terrify me with death? And during the short respite of a night, he prepared with calm and solemn resignation to encounter his fate. He checked the lamentations of his sister Fatima, who deplored the impending ruin of his house. Our trust, said Hussein, is in God alone. All things, both in heaven and earth, must perish and return to their creator. My brother, my father, my mother were better than me, and every Mussulman has an example in the Prophet. He pressed his friends to consult their safety by a timely flight. They unanimously refused to desert or survive their beloved master, and their courage was fortified by a fervent prayer and the assurance of paradise. On the morning of the fatal day, he mounted on horseback, with his sword in one hand and the Koran in the other. His generous band of martyrs consisted only of thirty-two horse and forty foot, 
but their flanks and rear were secured by the tent ropes and by a deep trench, which they had filled with lighted faggots, according to the practice of the Arabs. The enemy advanced with reluctance, and one of their chiefs deserted with thirty followers to claim the partnership of inevitable death. And in every close onset or single combat, the despair of the Fatimites was invincible, but the surrounding multitudes galled them from a distance with a cloud of arrows, and the horses and men were successively slain. A truce was allowed on both sides for the hour of prayer, and the battle at length expired by the death of the last of the companions of Hussein. Alone, weary, and wounded, he seated himself at the door of his tent. As he tasted a drop of water, he was pierced in the mouth with a dart, and his son and nephew, two beautiful youths, were killed in his arms. He lifted his hands to heaven, they were full of blood, and he uttered a funeral prayer for the living and the dead. In a transport of despair, his sister issued from the tent, and abjured the general of the Kufians that he would not suffer Hussein to be murdered before his eyes. A tear trickled down his venerable beard, and the boldest of his soldiers fell back on every side as the dying hero threw himself among them. The remorseless Shamer, a name detested by the faithful, reproached their cowardice, and the grandson of Mohammed was slain with three and thirty strokes of lances and swords. After they had trampled on his body, they carried his head to the castle of Kufa, and the inhuman Obeidola struck him on the mouth with a cane. Alas! exclaimed an aged Mussulman, on those lips I have seen the lips of the Apostle of God. In a distant age and climate, the tragic scene of the death of Hossein will awaken the sympathy of the coldest reader. On the annual festival of his martyrdom, in the devout pilgrimage to his sepulchre, his Persian votaries abandoned their souls to the religious frenzy of sorrow and indignation. When the sisters and children of Ali were brought in chains to the throne of Damascus, the caliph was advised to extirpate the enmity of a popular and hostile race, whom he had injured beyond the hope of reconciliation. But Yazid preferred the counsels of mercy, and the mourning family was honorably dismissed to mingle their tears with their kindred at Medina. The glory of martyrdom superseded the right of primogenitor, and the twelve imans, or pontiffs, of the Persian creed are Ali, Hassan, Hussein, and the lineal descendants of Hussein to the ninth generation. Without arms, or treasures, or subjects, they successively enjoyed the veneration of the people, and provoked the jealousy of the reigning caliphs. Their tombs at Mecca, or Medina, on the banks of the Euphrates, or in the province of Kosoran, are still visited by the devotion of their sect. Their names are often the pretense of sedition and civil war. But these royal saints despise the pomp of the world, submitted to the will of God and the injustice of man, and devoted their innocent lives to the study and the practice of religion. The twelfth and last of the Amans, conspicuous by the title of Madahi, or Guide, surpassed the solitude and sanctity of his predecessors. He concealed himself in a cave near Baghdad, the time and place of his death are uncertain, and his votaries pretend that he still lives, and will appear before the day of judgment to overthrow the dynasty of Dejal, or the Antichrist. In the lapse of two or three centuries, the posterity of Abbas, the uncle of Muhammad, had multiplied to the number of thirty-three thousand. The race of Ali might be equally prolific. The meanest individual was above the first and greatest of princes, and the most eminent were supposed to excel the perfection of angels. 
but their adverse fortune and the wide extent of the Mussulman empire allowed an ample scope for every bold and artful impostor who claimed affinity with the holy seed. The scepter of the Amohades in Spain and Africa, of the Fatimites in Egypt and Syria, of the sultans of Yemen and the Sophists of Persia, had been consecrated by this vague and ambiguous title. Under their reigns, it might be dangerous to dispute the legitimacy of their birth, and one of the Fatimite caliphs silenced an indiscreet question by drawing his scimitar. This, said Moez, is my pedigree, and these, casting a handful of gold to his soldiers, and these are my kindred and my children. In the various conditions of princes, or doctors, or nobles, or merchants, or beggars, a swarm of the genuine or fictitious descendants of Mohammed and Ali is honored with the appellation of sheikhs, or sherifs, or emirs. In the Ottoman Empire they are distinguished by a green turban, receive a stipend from the treasury, are judged only by their chief, and, however debased by fortune or character, still assert the proud preeminence of their birth. A family of three hundred persons, the pure and orthodox branch of the Caliph Hassan, is preserved without taint or suspicion in the holy cities of Medina and Mecca, and still retains, after the revolutions of twelve centuries, the custody of the temple and the sovereignty of their native land. The fame and merit of Mohammed would ennoble a plebeian race, and the ancient blood of the Koreish transcends the recent majesty of the kings of the earth. The talents of Mohammed are entitled to our applause, but his success has, perhaps, to it strongly, are we surprised that a multitude of proselytes should embrace the doctrine and the passions of an eloquent fanatic? In the heresies of the church, the same seduction has been tried and repeated from the time of the apostles to that of the reformers. Does it seem incredible that a private citizen should grasp the sword and the scepter, subdue his native country, and erect a monarchy by his victorious arms? In the moving picture of the dynasties of the East, a hundred fortunate usurpers have arisen from a baser origin, surmounted more formidable obstacles, and filled a larger scope of empire and conquest. Mohammed was alike instructed to preach and to fight, and the union of those opposite qualities, while it enhanced his merit, contributed to his success. The operation of force and persuasion, of enthusiasm and fear, continually acted on each other, till every barrier yielded to the irresistible power. His voice invited the Arabs to freedom and victory, to arms and rapine, to the indulgence of their darling passions in this world and the other, and the restraints which he imposed were requisite to establish the credit of the prophet, and to exercise the obedience of the people, and the only objection to his success was his rational creed of the unity and perfections of God. It is not the propagation, but the permanency of his religion that deserves our wonder, the same pure and perfect impression which he engraved at Mecca and Medina is still preserved, after the revolution of twelve centuries, by the Indian, the African, and the Turkish proselytes of the Koran. If the Christian apostles, St. Peter or St. Paul, could return to the Vatican, they might possibly inquire the name of the deity who is worshipped with such mysterious rites in that magnificent temple. At Oxford or Geneva, they would experience less surprise but it would still be incumbent on them to peruse the catechism of the church, and to study the orthodox commentators on their own writings, and the words of their master. But the Turkish dome of St. Sophia, with an increase of splendor and size, represents the humble tabernacle erected at Medina by the hands of Mohammed. The Mohammedans have uniformly withstood the temptation 
of reducing the object of their faith and devotion to a level with the senses and imagination of man. I believe in one God, and Muhammad is the apostle of God, is the simple and invariable profession of Islam. The intellectual image of the deity has never been degraded by any visible idol. The honors of the prophet have never transgressed the measure of human virtue, and his living precepts have restrained the gratitude of his disciples within the bounds of reason and religion. The votaries of Ali have, indeed, consecrated the memory of their hero, his wife and his children, and some of the Persian doctors pretend that the divine essence was incarnate in the person of the Imams. But their superstition is universally condemned by the Sonites, and their impiety has afforded a seasonable warning against the worship of saints and martyrs. The metaphysical questions on the attributes of God and the liberty of man have been agitated in the schools of the Mohammedans as well as those of the Christians. But among the former, they have never engaged the passions of the people or disturbed the tranquility of the state. The cause of this important difference may be found in the separation or union of the regal and sacerdotal characters. It was the interest of the caliphs, the successors of the prophet, and the commanders of the faithful to repress and discourage all religious innovations. The order, the discipline, the temporal and spiritual ambition of the clergy are unknown to the Moslems, and the sages of the law are the guides of their conscience and the oracles of their faith. From the Atlantic to the Ganges, the Quran is acknowledged as the fundamental code, not only of theology, but of civil and criminal jurisprudence, and the laws which regulate the actions and the property of mankind are guarded by the infallible and immutable sanction of the will of God. This religious servitude is attended with some practical disadvantage. The illiterate legislator has been often misled by his own prejudices and those of his country, and the institutions of the Arabian desert may be ill-adapted to the wealth and numbers of Isfahan and Constantinople. On these occasions, the Qadi respectfully places on his head the holy volume and substitutes a dexterous interpretation more apposite to the principles of equity and the manners and policy of the times. His beneficial or pernicious influence on the public happiness is the last consideration in the character of Muhammad. The most bitter and most bigoted of his Christian or Jewish foes will surely allow that he assumed a false commission to inculcate a salutary doctrine, less perfect only than their own. He piously supposed, as the basis of his religion, the truth and sanctity of their prior revelations the virtues and miracles of their founders. The idols of Arabia were broken before the throne of God, and the blood of human victims was expiated by prayer and fasting and alms, the laudable or innocent arts of devotion, and his rewards and punishments of a future life were painted by the images most congenial to an ignorant and carnal generation. Mohammed was, perhaps, incapable of dictating a moral and political system for the use of his countrymen, but he breathed among the faithful a spirit of charity and friendship, recommended the practice of social virtues, and checked by his laws and precepts the thirst of revenge and the oppression of widows and orphans. The hostile tribes were united in faith and obedience, and the valor which had been idly spent in domestic quarrels was vigorously directed against a foreign enemy. Had the impulse been less powerful, Arabia, free at home and formidable abroad, might have flourished under a succession of her native monarchs. Her sovereignty was lost by the extent and rapidity of conquest. 
the colonies of the nation were scattered over the east and west, and their blood was mingled with the blood of their converts and captives. After the reign of three caliphs, the throne was transported from Medina to the valley of Damascus, and the banks of the Tigris, and the holy cities were violated by impious war. Arabia was ruled by the rod of a subject, perhaps of a stranger, and the Bedouins of the desert, awakening from their dream of dominion, resumed their old and solitary independence. End of chapter 50, part 8